Genesis 1, 2 through 25. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was an evening, and there was a morning, one day. Then God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above and the from the water above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse sky. Evening came and then morning the second day. Then God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the water he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And it was so. The earth produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Evening came, and then morning, the third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the sky from the night, or the day from the night. They will serve as signs for seasons and for days and years. They will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night as well as the stars. God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, to rule the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. Evening came, and then morning the fourth day. Then God said, Let the water swarm with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the large sea creatures, and every living creature that moves and swarms in the water, according to their kinds. He also created every winged creature, according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. God blessed them. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the waters of the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. Evening came, and then morning, the fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that crawl, and the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. So God made the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that crawl on the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Does anybody in here know what Quitter's Day is? Ah, I didn't know either. You're about to learn. If you're not familiar with it, it is always the second Friday of every new year. <laughs> um, that was a couple days ago on Friday, January 12th this year. And it is the day by which most New Year's resolutions come to a screeching halt. Okay, anybody in here willing to admit that you've failed at yours already? Nobody? Man, what a room of people. I, I'm admitting it. Like, I absolutely have failed at the couple that I made. Um, that's pretty, man, I thought we had, we were a church of authenticity, you know, yeah. Let's try that again. How many of you are willing to admit you felt, y'all just don't make them. That's, there we go. Okay. That's, that's probably true. Cause the, the next thing I was going to say is that I'm kind of cynical. So I'm not big at making new year's goals. Cause I'm like, you know, what are the odds? Right. Um, and, and I get something feels right about the new year, uh, to set goals, um, to create meaning and purpose in our life. Um, um, again, I'm not huge on the new year myself, but goals in and of themselves are not bad, right? So the goal of goals is to remind ourselves um, of what the end aim is as we try to create processes and patterns and habits that will help us get to that point. 
But if we really want change, and there's even research that backs this up, if you want real change in your daily habits and your processes for longer than just a few days or a few weeks, you need more than just some temporary motivation sparked by a new year. Real change comes from deep and abiding purpose, knowing why you exist, why you were created, um, your conviction in the core of your being. That is what begins to change us. And so before you think I've become some sort of self-help guru, and this sermon is a monologue about how to keep your New Year's resolutions, I want to explain my point, okay? And to be a self-help guru, I feel like you got to have your own life figured out. So you don't have to worry about that for a while. So um, yeah, so here's my point. I do believe that purpose and meaning for our existence is ultimately given to us by God. That every single creature that ever has been created or ever will be created is created with incredible intentionality and purpose. And for humans, our purpose is ultimately to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And without understanding this purpose, we will wander aimlessly in life. And we'll have much bigger problems than just failing on our New Year's resolutions. This is one of the main things that we learn from the book of Genesis, especially in this first chapter that we're looking at today. In our text, as we just heard it read, we're going to see that God is a God who brings creation into existence with incredible intentionality, and he gives every single thing order and purpose. Nothing is by accident, and he's inviting it all into his cosmic plan for life and beauty. So as we typically do, we are preaching expositionally through um, a book of the Bible. We do that often. That's the primary diet of preaching that we have here at New Eden. Um, and today we are continuing in Genesis. You just heard the whole text read that we're going to be in. It's Genesis chapter 1, verses 2 through 25. Um, if you want to follow along, we'll be in the CSB version of the Bible, but you're welcome to use whatever translation you'd like. Um, th these verses uh, we're going to work our way through are rich and action-packed. Um, there's a lot going Going on here, okay? And so, by quick way of review, we need to remember first and foremost that Genesis is a theological narrative, ultimately about the character of God. God is the main character in the book of Genesis. And so, we're learning about God, how He works in the world, and how He has chosen to work through humans in spite of their failings. Um, we've summed up the book through this theme, God keeps his promises, All right, There's a lot of different kind of themes that run through Genesis, but that's the main one, the main lens we're looking through. It's what the book, book is ultimately about. Remember, you might find some clues in Genesis about science. You will find some historical facts, but Genesis is not first and foremost a scientific textbook, and it is not a neat chronological history lesson. If we approach Genesis that way, we will be asking questions of the text that it was never meant to answer. As we said last week, we have to come and take the text at face value. How would the original readers of the text have received this? And then we interpret that through the lens of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and that's how it begins to influence our lives. So that is important, okay? That's all I'm going to say about that. Um, if you missed last week's introductory sermon, again, I don't say this a whole lot, like, hey, you got to go back and listen, but if you do get a chance, I did lay a more extensive foundation for us as we approach this book. So you can find that podcast website, wherever. 
Um, so here's how we're going to work through today's text, okay? Um, first, I'm going to kind of just give a quick recap and overview of the passage. You just heard it read, but I'll recap a couple things, point out a couple ideas. Um, and then I want to point out three different truths that we learn about God from this creation narrative and how the enemy seeks to attack those truths about God and exchange them for lies. And then lastly, we're going to see that the ultimate hope that we find is in Christ as he ushers in a new creation, gives purpose and meaning to each of our lives greater than anything we could dream. All right. So that's how we're going to work our way through it. So let me start by just recapping what's going on in the passage you just heard read. Remember, this book is compiled most likely for Israel as they're probably wandering in a wilderness and then would continue to be read throughout times of exile. And so in these moments, the people would be wondering, just like we do when we're in times of hardship, can God still work and move like he promised he would in the past? Is he still the same God that we read of? And so this story is given to remind us of God's character, to ground us. Last week, if you remember, we saw verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That serves as essentially a heading to what we're about to read through the rest of chapter one. Introduces us to the main character. In the beginning, God. So we could spend hours, and there's some great study out there. The Bible Project has some great stuff. Like we could unpack the way this creation narrative is laid out. I mean, the, the author, the way he compiles this, he's masterfully using uh, Hebrew literary techniques, and he's helping us see the beauty and the purpose behind God's work. Um, but a couple things I just want to point out. It's, it's pretty neat. The ways that the, the six days of creation correspond to each other, days one, two, and three correspond to days four, five, and six. Um, on, on days one through three, God creates the environment in which his creation can flourish. And then days four, five, and six, you'll notice he begins to put the things in their proper environment. Day one, you get the creation of day and night. So these periods of light and these periods of darkness. And then day four, what happens? The sun and the moon and the stars get, get placed into these environments. On day two, you get the separation of the waters, right? To create um, the sky, this expanse. And then on day five, you get animals placed where? In the sky and on the waters. In day three, you get uh, the waters begin to separate and you get this land that just appears because God tells it to and it shows up right? And you get the creation of land and plants. And then on day six, what do you get? You get um, animals that run on the land that use plants for food. And you also get humans, which we're going to finish that creation narrative and look at humans next week, right? And so, so this is all this, this beautiful telling of this story. Nothing is by accident. Everything has a place and a purpose. And the main thing we need to see that, that the author is trying to communicate to us is that God brings order from the chaos. And, and we know in other scriptures that God brings something from nothing. That is something we know. We see it later in the New Testament and other passages. But that's not the main thing that the author is trying to tell us here is that God brings order from chaos. So look at with me again at verse two. Um, let's read it again. Is out starts. It says, now the earth, so we know God creates. And so how does this work? Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths and the spirit of God or the breath or the wind of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. So we get a picture of this, some type of existence, but it's chaotic. 
The Hebrew words here for formless and empty um, are tohu wavohu, right? And you can kind of hear the play on words there. Um, It's kind of fun to say. Um, It describes a a wilderness. Uh, One translator said a wild and waste. It's this idea of, of there's no purpose there's no meaning, things, there might be material existence, but, but there's, no, there, there's no meaning, there's no function. Um, just a wilderness of nothing. Now, we could get distracted, because this is how our brains do, and say, well, where did this chaotic matter come from, okay? Genesis, if it wanted you to know, it would have told you. Okay, and, and it doesn't, so it doesn't. Now, again, we can go to other passages of scripture and we do believe that God created everything, what's called ex nihilo, which means from nothing, right? But here in this passage, the point of this text is to help us see that there's wild and waste and darkness and this chaotic sea and there's, there's no room for humans and creation to flourish and something needs to be done about it. See, in our culture, we tie the idea of nothing to no physical matter. That's how we describe it. But in the culture this text was written, nothing was not the absence of matter, nothing was the absence of meaning. Existence, your existence, was tied to your purpose. Whether or not there was physical matter in front of you, if something did not have a function, it was nothing, it was useless. We even sometimes use those words in our own way. And the text is saying that whatever we see described in verse two, it had no existence, not because there wasn't physical matter. We at least see it described, whether it's metaphorical or not, I don't know, but we see watery depths and formless and empty and this darkness covering the surface of the watery depths. Whatever it was, it had no purpose, no metaphysical meaning, no function, bunch of wild and waste and darkness and nothing. But thankfully, that wasn't all there was. There was something hovering over all this mess. Something called the the breath or the wind or the spirit of Elohim. And this breath of God was enough to do something. And so what this story is telling us that in the midst of the wild and the waste, this scary chaos, God acts and works. And this is where we begin to learn the first of our three truths. God is powerful. Into the darkness and the chaos, God speaks up. Genesis 1-3, then God said, let there be light. And this language is like this nice imperative, like a king might say, let the food be brought forth to the table. It's going to happen, right? It's calling it, it's inviting the earth to begin to sprout. And over and over and over, like there's so much repetition. That is on purpose. The author, if you see something over and over, it's not like, why did he say that again? I get the point. No, you don't get the point. Go back and read it over and over and over. He wants you to see it. Over and over, we read, God said, let it be. And it simply was. Over and over and over, we read that God created and he made, and this creation is giving things function. He's fashioning it and forming the entire cosmos to reveal his glory and his might. And this is all by simply speaking his powerful word. And and as humans, we have incredible capacity to, to create things, but really we're all just recreators. Only God can just speak things into existence. He says it and it happens. That's another phrase we read over and over and over. And it was so. God said it, it just, boom, it happened. 
And the reason why things just happen when God speaks is because his decree, his word, when he says it, it's as good as done. It's not just like a promise like we are sometimes that we don't follow through on. The prophet Isaiah reminded the people of this truth as he was prophesying. He says, remember what happened long ago. This is Isaiah 46. He says, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and no one is like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done, saying my plan will take place and I will do all my will. I call a bird of prey from the east, a man for my purpose from a far country. Yes, I have spoken, so I will also bring it about. I have planned it, I also will do it. This is God. He is powerful. You are not as in control as you think you are. So God creates all things by his powerful word. And I think a lot of us, if we at least grew up like in the evangelical world, we would probably all nod our heads to that. But the next piece of this that's important, God not only creates, but he sustains all things. It is not as if God created the so-called natural order and then took his hands off and went and stood in the corner and said, let's see what happens. That's, that's the way a lot of us functionally live our lives. God got it started, but you know what? Does he really still work, answer prayer? Is he really involved? It might be better for us to say that God is the cosmic creator instead of just saying he was the one who created the cosmos. See, because if God were to cease being creator, the world wouldn't just get a downgrade. It wouldn't just like slowly kind of spiral. Like we cease to exist, right? Like my daughter Scarlett is in this season of life where she's asking like some deep, deep questions. And I'm like, yeah, because he's like, hey, can you come help? I'm like, I don't know what to say. But she asked the other day, she was like, what happened if we just, the world wasn't? Like, I'm like, I'm like, I, I, we just, just wouldn't exist. And she was like, well, she has asked something else. Like, would we know or would we do that? I said, no, you wouldn't exist. You wouldn't even be able to ask this question. <laughs> like, but if God were to remove his breath, his wind, his spirit from among us, the world is gone. It doesn't exist. But God is actively involved. He's not like me. I hate maintaining anything. Like, I'm like, just throw it away and get a new one, which isn't good for your budget. But it's, you know, I'm like, I don't want to try to figure this out. Like, I'm not a tinkerer. Like, I don't even like putting gas in my car. Like, I'm waiting till the last. I know those three dashes come up after zero miles, and I probably got about five more miles, and I'll be good. I've, I've yet to run out. <laughs> you know, knock on wood. All right. Uh, I'll be calling some of you later. Hey, can you come help me out? I just hate doing it. I hate, if I knew I could get away without getting my oil changed, like I wouldn't want it, I wouldn't do that, right? I hate maintaining things. That's not God. He not only maintains and sustains and has the power to do it, he loves it. G.K. Chesterton explores this when he talks about God creating every flower and, and finding incredible joy and beauty in every little thing that he's involved in. And, and so Psalm 104, you've heard me mention this. I mentioned it last week. It's an incredible Psalm. Go read it if you can. It's this retelling of the creation narrative. And in that Psalm, these are some of the things that we're told God currently does. Not that he did. There's a lot about that, but I'm just going to read through the list. He causes springs to gush forth. This is what he's currently doing. He supplies water for animals. He waters the mountain. He causes grass to grow. He provides crops. He produces food and wine for the enjoyment of man. He sustains human hearts with bread. He plants trees. That's incredible. He brings darkness and light and days and nights. All creatures wait on him for their food and he gives it to them. And when he takes away his breath, creatures die. And when he breathes his breath, creatures live. This is the active, creating, sustaining God. 
The same one that spoke things into existence is still involved in the blooming of every flower, the feeding of every animal, the rising of every sunrise, and the birth of every child. Hebrews 1.3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Colossians 1.17, he is before all things and by him all things hold together. This is a snapshot of the power of God and you say, what do we do with this? What is your application? Just worship. That we just respond in praise because he's all powerful. But not only do we learn that God is powerful from this narrative, we also learn that he is purposeful. I love this. It doesn't take long for us to read through this narrative to see the language of God giving order and purpose and identity to everything he creates. No word of creation is empty or vain. Just read it and you pick up on the repetitive language. God is separating things and placing things in their proper environment. Birds in the sky and fish in the sea and sun and moon and stars. He, he says that things that he creates, he invites them to continue in that creation process. And he says, how do they produce both plants and animals according to their kind? It's not that um, an, an apple seed falls and might be a peach tree next time. I don't know. We can't really plan. No, there's order and there's purpose. There once was wild and waste and chaos, and now there's a plan and purpose and order. There is time. That's what day and night is telling us. Now we can look and we can plan things. We have seasons and years and months and days. And beyond that, if it's not clear enough, we see him give everything a purpose as he names things. He calls the light day. He calls the darkness night. He calls the expanse sky, the dry land earth, and the gathering of the water seas. For the original readers of this creation narrative, this naming would have incredible significance. Naming gave something purpose, an identity, a function, existence. As we go through Genesis, you're going to see this repeat. Abram's name is changed to Abraham. Sarai's name is changed to Sarah. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. It is God giving them new identities, recreating them. Our culture just names people and things whatever we feel like, right? Whatever would be good for branding. Um, or with our kids. Like, I'd love to tell my kids, man, I was proclaiming your destiny over you. But we just like, like the name Maddie Wren. I don't know. We thought it was unique, right? We thought the same thing with Caden, and now every other boy we meet is like Aiden, Jaden, Hayden, Caden, Brayden, I don't know. So we were like, well, failed on that one. Let's just call you KJ now. It's a little bit more unique. Um, but yeah, it wasn't like that in this culture. Names were incredibly significant. It had incredible meaning. That's why later when God invites Adam, we'll see this uh, in a couple weeks, to name animals, it's, it's significant because God is sharing his dominion with him, inviting Adam to name the animals. The process, he's inviting them into that to bring order and purpose. So everything has a place and a purpose because God is a God, a purposeful God. Everything belongs in its proper order. But lest you think God only cares about function, as we read, we see that he also cares about form. To say it in a way some of you will appreciate, God is not just an engineer, he's also an artist. You can laugh, it's okay. It wasn't funny, I guess, so... <laughs> The point is, God's not just about the spreadsheet, right? Like that matters for and purpose, but he's also about 
beauty. I thought that would click well. I don't know. So this is the third truth we learn about God. God is not only powerful, not only purposeful, but he is good. Over and over and over. We read that every time God creates something, he steps back. He takes time to observe it. And he says, what I have created is good. This is the word, Hebrew word tov. The thing is, we don't ever see this word described in where we get a definition of it. We just hear about things that are tov. They're, they're good. They're beautiful. They're, they're good to look at it. Every single piece of his creation, even the sea monsters, which when this passage was compiled at this point, sea monsters were known as, as evil and dangerous to the people of God. One of mankind's greatest threats in this account, simply one of God's good creation. In the Psalm 104 account, you know what it says? It calls, it gives it a name. It calls the sea monster Leviathan. It says, you created it to go play around with the ships. Just, just a creature of God's, that's good. The original intent of all of God's creation is for it to be good, tov, beautiful. Things do go tragically wrong. Like we take this, this potential for life and we, we, we go towards death, but that's not how it was supposed to be, church. What God created had the potential for ongoing flourishing and shalom. There is time, there is light, there is land upon which to cultivate life. There is food for everyone to sustain existence. There is the potential for procreation to join God in this. And God looks at this and says, it's good. The word good doesn't mean perfect. We're not actually trying to get back to that garden. We're trying to head to a better one. See, because it's not like God created it like we do on something like maybe a work of art. Like, it's, it's perfect, don't touch it. No, God says like, like, get your hands dirty, let's go, let's involve together, right? Like there, but there is, this goodness is, there is an environment that has been created that is conducive to the ongoing flourishing and creating and enjoying. And I love this. God doesn't, like we often do, just create something and move on to the next thing. He steps back and looks at it and says, gosh, that's good. And I believe God still does that with every single one of you that he's created. I tell my girls that all the time. I tell my son that, but my girls especially, because that's culturally, uh, they're going to get challenged more with that. Like, God created your ears, Maddie, and he's like, oh, those are so good. I love those. He created your nose and your eyes. This was God's original intent to speak into existence a creation that had purpose and beauty, this world full of goodness and tove in which he could display his glory by partnering with humanity to spread his rule to the ends of the earth. Unfortunately, that's not what happens. We'll see it in a few weeks, but God's power, his purposes and his goodness are all attacked in this garden of Eden this sea monster um, will become to be known as the dragon as we see throughout biblical literature. And it starts with this serpent who attacks God's powerful word by saying, did God really say? He attacks God's purposes when he tempts humans to begin to decide for themselves what is good and evil. No longer does the creator get to say, hey, this is good and this is evil, but you get to decide it. That's the point of eating of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. 
Find your purpose and identity in self. Put yourself on the throne in the center of your own world. And the serpent also attacked God's goodness. When he told humans, God just doesn't want you to be like him. If God was really good, he wouldn't be withholding this from you. And the enemy is still doing that work today in our own lives as we question God's power, his purposes, his goodness. And every time we give in to the enemy, sin enters the picture and God's good creation devolves back into chaos and emptiness. If you read the Hebrew scriptures, and even all the way to Revelation, you're gonna see that the dragon comes to symbolize this powerful enemy of God's people, the seas come to symbolize chaos and the unknown. Instead of life-giving waters, they are death-giving waters. And I think this is probably, the effects of sin are probably most explicit in the book of Jeremiah. The prophet is prophesying about Israel's sin, and this is how he describes it. I want you to notice a decreation language. Jeremiah 4, verses 22 through 26. Listen for decreation language. For my people are fools. They do not know me. They are foolish children without understanding. They are skilled in doing what is evil, but they do not know how to do good. And this is how he describes this environment. I looked at the earth and it was formless and empty. I looked to the heavens, that formless empty, same language, wild and waste. I looked to the heavens, their light was gone, the light that was created, it's gone. I looked at the mountains and they were quaking, all the hills shook. This land that appeared to give a stable foundation upon which to live is shaking now. I looked and there was no human being and, and all the birds of the sky had fled. I looked and the fertile field was a wilderness. Empty, formless, darkness. This is the effect of sin on God's good world. Every time we sin, every time communities sin, every time there's unrighteousness or injustice, we are devolving. It doesn't get any better throughout time. But all throughout the ongoing story of the scriptures, even after the great fall in Genesis 3, there are these glimmers of hope, and I love uh, the story of God bringing purpose and order. The reason it's important for us to see these, these, these chaotic waters and God bringing order and purpose through it is because this same story is retold through the chaotic waters of the flood. Noah and his family are delivered on this mountaintop, this land that appears. And what are they told? Recommissioned to go be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This retelling of the story. Later, Israel is enslaved to a great enemy, often known as the great beast. You'll see great kings and emperors that were evil referred to as the beast or the dragon. They were underneath this pharaoh, but God brings them what? Through the Red Sea and the waters part and dry land appears through the word of his prophet Moses. Later, after wandering in an empty wilderness for, for years, the nation of Israel, God uses Joshua to bring them through the Jordan River on dry land. You see, like this is not an accident. This is intentional. Isaiah 51, the prophet tells of a day when the redeemed of the Lord will be saved. And he says, it reminds them, it's the same Lord that's gonna deliver you as the one who pierced the serpent, who pierces sea monsters and causes God's people to walk through the waters of the deep. And so as the world devolves into great chaos and purposelessness and a wild waste, the question we ask is, can once again God take what was evil, what was chaotic, what stood against his purposes and bring beauty and purpose and life and chaos and turn it to good? 
And against all odds, one night, the true and perfect human, the one who would perfectly reflect, who would not give in to the tempter in the wilderness, if you remember that story, he would be born. And, and the gospels continue to show us the New Testament shows us that the same God that had power at creation that spoke things into existence is the same one who became flesh and dwelt among us. In Revelation 12, in this apocalyptic literature, this is how the story of, of Jesus's birth is told. That there's this dragon just waiting outside this pregnant woman, just waiting for her to have a son so he could take him away. But instead the son is rescued from the dragon and eventually the dragon is defeated and thrown down. The evil one can attack the seed of this serpent, the one promised in Genesis 3 who will deal with the dragon once and for all and crush his head. It can attack him, but it cannot have him. As Trip Lee says, most y'all don't know who that is. Nahum 1.4 and Psalm 106, it's this incredible language and it says that Yahweh rebukes the seas. And it is the same one that they ask of Jesus, who is this man that even the waves obey him? It's the one who created him. Of course he can tell him to shut up and calm down. In Job 9.8, we're told of this Yahweh who treads on water. And in the gospels, we see Jesus walking on water. In the original creation, I pointed this out last week, but we see the spirit of God hovering over the waters. And in the same way, we see Jesus buried in the waters in baptism. And then he comes up out of the waters as the, the true rock, the true foundation, like the land arriving uh, out of the waters. And what do we hear? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the spirit descends upon him like a dove. His power can't be thwarted and his purposes will work glory. Even though his path to the cross seems empty and useless from every human perspective, that's not how you start a revolution. You go right into the, the, the center of the capital and you, you get all the army to come behind you and you call down the angels from the sky and overthrow them, but not Jesus. He goes to a cross because he is going to rescue all those who trust in him. And just like God takes the wild chaos and the emptiness and the original creation, he turns it to beauty and life. So in the cross, that is the clearest picture when we see God taking what was meant for evil, the greatest injustice ever. God himself laid up on a cross for the sins of the world and he takes it and turns it to good. And he takes the results of our sin, the, the Jeremiah picture of all of our sin leading to chaos and destruction and emptiness in this wild and waste. And Jesus willingly enters into that for us as he goes into the depths of Sheol. In Leviticus, you read this random nugget about this scapegoat that the sins of the people are placed on and then it's sent out into the wilderness symbolizing the sins of the people to go away to the wilderness, never to return. And this is foreshadowing Christ, taking on our sins, entering into the depths of the chaotic wilderness, taking our sins, never more to return, to remove them as far as the east is from the west. Good luck figuring that one out scientifically. He goes right into the belly of the dragon and enters into death itself. But because he is the creator, because he is the life giver, because he's the way, the truth, and light itself, he comes out the other side holding the keys of death in his hand. Death no longer has sting. 
grave no longer has victory because if God can take nothing and make something, if he can take death and make life, then he can rescue you. And he taunts all the powers of darkness with an empty grave and says, good luck. You gave me your best shot. Didn't do anything. That's why when you read post-resurrection, what is the language of the people of God? A new creation. If any is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all has become new. And he is inviting you to trade in your empty and selfish ways to come to the end of your purposelessness, waste-filled, chaotic lives and in exchange receive new names written down in glory. When you come to Christ, you have new meaning and purpose and beauty now because you find it in Christ. It doesn't matter what the world says to you. And one day all will be made new. That's why Revelation says this little nugget and the sea was no more. The chaos of the sea, it's gone. Doesn't mean there's no water because we see this river of life coming from the throne, but only water that brings life. No water that brings death. The dragon thrown out forever. Says the smoke goes up forever and ever. That's like, it's, 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 it's final, it's complete. No more enemies, no more sin to muck it up. That's why the, the, the gates are left open, right? Because there ain't nothing to be scared of anymore. And we're told that the people of God will have God's name on their foreheads. That's what this mark of the beast is. It's not about this chip that you're going to get. In your head. Like it is, whose are you? Are you God's or the beast? And when you got the name of God on your forehead, which happened the moment you said, I surrender, I trust in your life, death, by resurrection, can't be taken away. In that day, the recreated project of Eden will begin. We'll get to rule and reign with God. Do you hear that language? To have dominion, steward creation in a good, wise manner. That's why we're told that in John 1, that to all who believe, he gives what? The right to be called. That's naming language, sons of God. And no one can take it away because God gave it to you. And the same, like if you look at creation and you read this name, you're like, dang, what a powerful God. That same intentionality, which, which he just, this random line, he made the stars also, like, oh, psh, okay, that was easy. But the same intentionality with which he did that, he fashioned you in your mother's womb. He has purpose, identity, and plan. Don't forget that. I told you my daughter, Scar, that's been asking a bunch of questions recently. And so I just told her, she was asking all these questions. I was like, man, I really like the way your brain works. And she was like, well, yeah, God made it, so... <laughs> like, that's true. I'm glad you're hearing what we're telling you. And God made all of our brains. And he created each of us to find our purpose in his purpose, to find our beauty in his beauty. And we see this most clearly in the face of Christ. First Peter 2, language. If you are in Christ, you are a people for God's own possession, chosen to proclaim God's glory, called out of darkness, creation language. And he even says, once not a people. What does it mean? I, I materially existed. I was a person by the scientific definition. But he says, you were once not a people, but now you are God's people. Amen. And if you are not in Christ, then this is your invitation trading your chaos for his purpose, your weakness for his power, your ugly sin for his beauty and goodness. And this changes us, church. We begin to live lives 
that display glimpses and foretaste of the order and purpose of God. We surrender to his purposes. We live glimmers of hope in the art that we create and enjoy. We give snapshots of glory as the power of God's breath or his spirit changes lives in and among us. And knowing this, you can actually give your life for something bigger than yourself. In close, I want to show you a short clip of an interview with a guy named Mike McDaniel. Y'all weren't expecting this as a closing. If you know who Mike McDaniel is, um, well, if you don't know who he is, he is a coach with the Miami Dolphins, the head coach. Um, he's got a very unique personality. Um, if you've watched any of his interviews, you'll know that. They lost last night in like below 30 degree weather. But, but they, they interviewed him recently and he was telling how he used to spend his life away partying and drinking. Um, he said it began to control his life um, and that it almost, he, he got, at one point did get fired and then he got another shot and um, was still struggling with this. And, and at this moment, it, he talks about this moment where he realized it almost had taken away everything that he and his wife had. He almost lost his job again, his last opportunity. He almost lost her, everything they had worked for. And, and the interview is going to pick up right after him telling about this moment and him saying what, what changed him. And he talks about how his wife's unconditional love in that moment and finding new purpose and meaning not in the pursuit of pleasures anymore, but in the joy of servitude, in the joy of serving others and giving your life for something bigger than yourself. Now, I don't know if he's a follower of Jesus, um, but I thought this captured what it means to find purpose in something greater than oneself. So uh, watch this video. Her unconditional love for me in that moment and her heartbreak and her uncertainty and her fear, that whole thing lumped together. It was that moment that I said, um, I, I, I will never drink again. After checking himself into rehab, McDaniel has been sober for the last 2,821 days and counting. Mike has just evolved into this, like, beautiful being. <laughs> Anytime I see him, I see like this white light around him. Wow. My wife, Katie McDaniel, we've come a long way. We got a long way to go. The path to sobriety wasn't the only trial the McDaniels had to endure. After struggling with infertility challenges, the couple welcomed daughter Ayla June in 2021. That was a whole nother journey that we weren't sure if we were able gonna, we were gonna yeah. have her and she, it was a miracle baby that um, we feel so fortunate, but it, it's changed both of us mm -hmm. in ways that are very beautiful. This parent thing is legit. And I'm sure there's some like, just wait, and I know. Um, but right now, she's two and thinks I'm awesome, so, and wants to hang out with me. How has becoming a father made you a better head coach? Um, I think, Ironically, they're similar in that it's a servitude role. I'm so proud of you. I mean, you are a everything you, you wanted to be and more. Being a dad is very much like being um, a head coach in, in that you're constantly concerned about the well-being of other people. Yeah. And I know for a fact I couldn't be any of the things that are the most important things to me. Father, husband, man, and then head coach. All of those are a consequence of wanting to be something for someone. To not exist for yourself is a beautiful thing. To not exist for oneself 
It's a beautiful thing. So may we find the purpose of our existence in Christ alone. It's the only thing that'll never let you down. So as you look at the creation, may you be reminded of how small you really are and the bigness of God, his power, his purpose, and his goodness, but may you also be incredibly encouraged because of Christ, you, no matter who you are, are invited to find your story in his. You were made for this, so don't settle for anything less. There's nothing greater in all the world.